So if the Lord puts that in your mind to pray for it, I appreciate that very much. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We'll start off by reading the first six verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I want you to notice something with me as we start off, and we'll look at that more closely later. The first three words are what? For this reason. And if you turn to verse 14, which is the verse after our session, which we'll, our session, our study this morning, we look at next week. What are the first three words in verse 14? For this reason. So that's a, call that an inclusio, a parenthesis. For this reason, starts off the section, ends the section. What is the message of the book of Ephesians? Let's start off by thinking globally of what Ephesians talks about. And I probably stole this for some, some, from somewhere. I found it in my notes. Um, considering, here's what Paul's argument is. Considering the rich spiritual blessings with which God has enriched us as believers and considering the deliverance that he's provided for us who are not Jews, we are Gentiles, from our position without God, that's what we were historically, we were without God. We are in a, he has placed us in a position of unity with God and with one another. And because of that, Paul urges the Ephesians, the first three chapters are doctrinal, talking about the rich spiritual blessings which we received. And from chapters four to six, Paul urges us, because of that, to maintain our position in unity by loving one another, by resisting the attacks of the enemy and his demons, and by appropriating God's provision for them. That, that's the argument of the book of Ephesians. That's an overall short statement of what Ephesians is about. In chapter 1, which you already looked at, in the first 14 verses, it, talk, verses, it talks about election and predestination. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us to be his adopted children. And this is the work of the Father, who planned our salvation, and it's the work of, this, uh, of the Son who carried out our salvation, and the work of the Holy Spirit who confirms our salvation by indwelling us and, uh, and, and being the seal of our redemption. And election is a difficult subject, and I'd like to just, just like to put it this way. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm glad God chose me because I would never have chosen God. I'm, God. I'm glad God sought me out because I would never have sought God. And I believe that my salvation depends 100% on God. But I believe that my, my salvation depends 100% on my response to God's invitation. And I believe that we as Christians are 100% responsible for presenting the gospel to others. 
And if those 100% don't add up for you, they don't add up for me either. And if it doesn't make sense and it doesn't fit our mathematical minds, perhaps we should be happy that we worship a God who knows things we don't know and understands things we don't understand. And God's plan of salvation goes beyond my comprehension. In verses 15 to 23, we saw Paul's first prayer. And he prayed that we might understand all that God has done for us in Christ. In chapter 2, we saw our new position in Christ. Briefly, we were once far from God. We were far from God's people. And now with the Jews, God has made one body and we're united in one body. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, there's a parenthesis. Paul starts off by saying, for this reason... And he changes the subject. And he picks up the subject again in chapter 14, in verse 14. And as I studied this over the last number of weeks, my mind went back to about grade 6 or grade 7 in Nova Scotia in a school on a naval base where my family lived, um, good school. I remember the teacher telling us how to write essays. And she had two rules. Do not open a parenthesis when you write an essay. Do not start a sentence with and. Now that doesn't go very well with the Bible because you know in the Hebrew Old Testament about over half of the verses in the Hebrew Old Testament start with and. We don't translate that because it would make the text difficult to read in English or in French or any other language but in Hebrew a lot of the verses start with and. So my teacher was not necessarily right. And uh, the Apostle Paul was capable of opening up parentheses from time to time, and he does it here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of your Gentiles, and you'll see, at least in the SV version, there's a hyphen, and he goes off on a tangent. He opens up a parenthesis. In chapter 3, uh, in verse 14, he, breaks, he ends, his, ends his parenthesis, and next week, I guess, you'll be looking at Verse 14 and on, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we're in a parenthesis here. In chapter 3, Paul looks back on the wonderful soul-stirring truths in verses 1 and 2. And he's moved to pray a second time that the Egyptian believers might understand and appreciate what God had done for them and how much God has loved them. But suddenly he opens up a parenthesis before the second prayer. Why? Perhaps you'll allow me to present three possible reasons. First of all, repetition. Um, emphasis, good pedagogy, repetition. Uh, we need to hear something more than once. And Paul has explained some wonderful truths in chapter 2, particularly chapters 1 and 2 together. And he goes back and he reviews those truths in this 13-verse parenthesis. Secondly, I think it's important for Paul here to explain the source and the authority of this new doctrine, of this wonderful, this wonderful concept, this wonderful truth that, that the Gentiles are joined with the Jews in one body, the Church of Jesus Christ. And this is particularly important because this is the Ephesian church. You realize that when Paul writes, Ephes, writes the, the epistle to Ephesus, he's in prison. He's very likely in a Roman prison, and he's been in prison for three or four or perhaps five years. That's a long time to be in prison, 
And it, it's not like the prison in Three Rivers. In Three Rivers, we have a federal prison. And um, when I retire, I'm going to go live there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great place. It really is. Um, Paul was probably chained most of the day to a smelly Roman soldier. Um, he had some liberty, more than most Roman, citizen, most Roman prisoners, but not all that much. Um, difficult time. And uh, this is the Ephesian church. And Paul is a prisoner because he was in Jerusalem. I'm not sure the exact timeline here, maybe four years beforehand. And he was in the temple, minding his own business, bringing a gift to the Jerusalem church from the, from the, non, from the Gentile churches, uh, worshiping, carrying out some Jewish ceremonies to prove that he had not rejected his inheritance. And troublemakers from Ephesus, from Asia, from Ephesus, who were in Jerusalem for the Passover with Paul, accused him of bringing a non-Jew into the temple, which was a capital offense, and raised up a riot. And Paul was arrested, and he spent the next five years in prison. So here he's, he's writing to the Ephesian church, which were very much aware of the fact that Paul's gospel to the non-Jewish population was causing problems and was contested. And so, so to this Ephesian church, he wants to explain the source and the authority of this new doctrine. And that's one of the reasons he opens up this parenthesis. And thirdly, I think we need to understand that he needed to reassure them about his imprisonment. He starts off chapter 3 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of your Gentiles. Now Paul starts off chapter 1 of Ephesians by saying, Paul, apostle. And he talks about this wonderful inheritance we have as Christians and our position. God has raised us up with Christ and placed us in heavenly places. Oh, it's so wonderful. And then he says, me, Paul, prisoner. <laughs> prisoner. And uh, perhaps he needs to explain why he's a prisoner. So perhaps those are the three reasons, there might be others, why Paul opens up this parenthesis. Here's our outline, and I, we're supposed to tell what our sources are. I stole this from a commentary somewhere because it had five Ps, and I thought that was great. Divine ministry, mystery. Uh, first of all, it's prisoner. Secondly, it's plan. Third, it's preaching. Fourth, it's purpose. And five, it's privileges. <clears throat> we'll look at those five points this morning. First of all, prisoner. So, as I said, in the first two chapters, Paul has presented the believers their glorious position, their riches, their destiny, and Paul's in prison. And does this not discredit his message? Does this not take away his authority? Does this not demonstrate, perhaps, that he's not a true apostle because Paul's apostleship was contested? Is it possible that he's been rejected by God? He's been in prison for years. Notice here that in that verse, it's interesting that Paul, even if he's in a Roman prison, he considers himself to be a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, verse 1, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Don't think that I'm in prison because I've done something wrong or because that I've been discredited or because God has rejected me. I'm in prison on your behalf. And Paul understood here that his circumstances were contributing to the spread of the gospel. And when we go through difficult times, 
when it's discouraging, it's hard. Like Paul, we need to understand that our circumstances in the grace of God, in the providence and the sovereignty of God are contributing to the spread of the gospel. <clears throat> Paul wrote elsewhere, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that, it, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, Caesar's guard, Neron's, Nero's guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul understood that his circumstance as a prisoner was advancing the gospel, and he wanted the Ephesian church to understand that. Paul's status as a prisoner does not take away from his authority. This message about how the Gentiles and the Jews are now one in Christ was given to Paul directly by God. He is the steward of that message. Oikonomia, uh, managing a household on the owner's behalf. <clears throat> I uh, worked as a, an accountant for a number of years. And I had a pretty good position in a very large print shop, not far from my home. And the owner liked to spend the winter in Florida and the summer in northern Quebec fishing and hunting. Um, and he let me, let me pretty well run the place. But I was made understood, and he trusted me because I understood that I was running that, not, it's not mine. I'm a steward. I'm a manager. I looked after it for him because it belonged to him. And Paul is here saying that I'm a steward. I'm managing a household on the owner's behalf. He's a steward. Secondly, we can talk about the plan of this mystery that's being revealed. Mystery. Mystery is not something mysterious in the Bible. A mystery is a truth that was not understood in the Old Testament, but which is fully revealed in the New Testament. Now, now, the truth that Gentiles would be part of God's kingdom, it was hinted at in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when Judaism was invented, the first Jew, the first calling of God's people to himself in the Old Testament, Abraham, in Genesis 12, 3, when it first started, we read, In you, God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. An anticipation of this great, great day when Jews and Gentiles would be part of the same body. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, this wonderful verse, it is, it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus' birth, had... Uh, 750 years before Paul, Paul wrote Ephesians, Isaiah predicted, foresaw that the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews would be part of God's people. It's interesting, and our Lord referred to that, that the only dead person raised to life by Elijah was the son of a Phoenician woman. And perhaps that doesn't mean anything to you, Phoenician woman. Phoenicia was perhaps Lebanon today. But you have to realize that the Phoenicians were the source of the worship of Baal, and particularly the worship of Astaroth, the female deity, um, 
who was brought to Israel by Jezebel, already present to some extent, in some, in some degree, but brought particularly to Israel by Je hated Jezebel. And so this Phoenician woman represented the worst forms of idolatry to God's people. And here God heals, uh, brings to life only one dead person, the son of a Phoenician woman. The only leper healed by Elisha was a Syrian soldier. You know that story perhaps. Jesus referred to those two events when Jesus visited Phoenicia while he was on earth, anticipating also. The, early leader, the leaders of the early church, they really struggled with the idea that Gentiles could be part of God's people. And Jewish converts said they were Christians, I'm not sure. They followed Paul from city to city to attack his ministry and to insist that Gentiles must first convert to Judaism before coming to Christ. You can come to Christ, but pass by Judaism, get, get uh, become a proselyte, get circumcised, get, get, get baptized in the sense of being purified by water ceremony, become a Jew, then you become a Christian. And Paul fought hard to ensure acceptance of the truth of this mystery. Now this mystery was revealed through God's holy apostles and prophets. And this mystery was revealed by the Spirit of God. Paul is here speaking of the, of the authority by which he presents this doctrine. And Paul states this mystery in a brief, pithy statement that resumes the truth in chapters 1 and 2. Chap verse 6 of chapter 3 of Ephesians resumes the first two chapters. It's a, it's a resume. And he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus in the gospel. Gentiles are fellow heirs. The same benefits as the Jews. They're not borders or strangers. In the Old Testament, there were strangers that could be, live in, 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 Jerusalem, in Israel, but they weren't Jews. But now... We, as Gentiles, we enjoy the same legal status and we're fellow heirs. Abraham's descendants were promised wonderful uh, possessions, uh, wonderful things, and we now become part. We're now heirs of all those promises. Gentiles are members of the same body. We're linked by common life with every person in God's holy family. Gentiles partake in the promise of Christ through the gospel. For thousands of years, the Jewish people lived in the hope that the Messiah would restore their blessings, accomplished everything promised to Abraham. For, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews had lived under the Babylonians and under the Persians and under the, 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 the Greeks and then under the Romans. And except for brief periods, they've been dominated by others and they're waiting for a Messiah to come to deliver them. This Christ, this Messiah, now accomplishes spiritual deliverance for Gentiles as well as the Jews. So unity in the church, unity between Jews and Gentiles depends on their being in Christ. Thirdly, let's look at his preaching. Paul, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 9 right now. Um, of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which is given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. First of all, Paul was made a minister of the gospel. Minister. Diakonos. Diakonos is a Greek word which originally meant a servant who waits on tables, a waitress. Some time ago, I was crossing the American border with um, a pastor in a church in the U.S. And at the border, the um, border at the, 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 the American customs agent was giving him a hard time. And he slipped south like that and said, I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm somebody. You've got to respect me. Okay? I, I think he needs to understand that the word minister means servant. And I hate to see that word used as if it's a wonderful, honorable position that everybody should bow down before you because you're a minister. God's servants cease to think of themselves as when God's servants cease to think of themselves as servants, they lose their perspective and their authority. Paul says, "Here I'm the least of all the saints." Humility. When Paul did not appoint himself to this work. God made him a minister, and all of this was because of God's grace, not because of Paul's qualifications. I don't know what God has called you to do, but let's never forget. That's God's grace, unmerited favor, his goodness to us, not because we're something. And Paul's work was to preach Christ, not himself. Unlike some TV preachers I listen to for two or three minutes at a time before I have to turn it off, uh, Paul preached Christ, didn't talk about himself. His call was to preach the truth of God's word and God's gospel. He talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And let's never forget as we talk to our students and to our congregation, as we talk to our children in Sunday school, whatever we're talking to, unsaved friends, we need to let people know the greatness of our position in Christ. That's our vertical relationship. Verse 8, the greatness of our position in Christ. And then we need to let Christians know about the plan of God. He's the creator of all things. The church, central in God's priorities. The church is central in God's priorities. Kind of secondary in a lot of Christianity today. Our horizontal relationships. Fourth, purpose. And that purpose is the glory of God. And that's problematic for other people. Um, in the early 1700s up to the middle of that century, there's a man living in Scotland, a Scotch guy by the name of David Humes. And um, Humes did all he could to destroy Christianity and all religions. He wrote a book called Dialogues. And in that book, he kind of embedded three philosophers who discussed religion, discussed particularly Christianity. And uh, he called one Demia and the other Filio and the other Galaspides, uh, I think. And um, most people who have studied David Hume will tell you that Filio, they had these three imaginary people in this book debating Christianity. Filio presents the ideas that David Hume himself uh, maintained. And David Hume used to say, 
I reject the God of Christianity because he's always worried about his own glory. He's he's narcissistic. Is that the word? Excuse me. Narcissus was an imaginary Greek person who um, took a walk and he came to a body of water. And mirrors were not common back in those days. And he looked in the water and he saw a reflection of himself. And he, he thought he was so good looking, so beautiful, that he just stood there and looked at himself for a long, long time. And he finally died there, admiring his person, centered on himself. That's what the idea of being narcissistic is. And, and Hume says that this God, who's always concerned with his own glory, is narcissistic. And it's one of the arguments that's used if you have students at school, Seja particularly, uh, where God's word is being attacked, God's person is being attacked. Be aware that that's one of the arguments that's brought up. This God who's concerned about his own glory. How do we answer that? I'd like to take a couple of minutes, uh, maybe more than a couple of minutes, to look at that. Um, because the ultimate purpose of God from all, of e- from all eternity is to glorify himself. That's a fact. Like it or not, that is a fact. And today we don't like that. In our society that is rejected. And I, th- I think Piper explains that well. Uh, is this egotistical? Is it narcissistic? Piper says this. A major, cri- a ma- a major question people have when they hear about Christian hedonism enjoying life, uh, one of Piper's themes. Uh, One of the great questions we have is, how is God's passion for his glory not a sinful form of narcissism and megalomania? Think a lot about ourselves, I guess. The answer is that God's passion for his glory is the essence of his love to us. Let me read that again. God's passion for his glory is the essence of his love to us. Narcissism and megalomania megalomonia are not love. Piper continues and he says, God's love for us is not mainly his making much of us, but is giving us the ability to enjoy making much of him forever. In other words, God's love for us keeps God at the center, center of of us, of our lives, center of the universe. God's love for us exalts his values and our satisfaction in it. If God's love made us central and focused on our value, and, and that, I think, is representative, expresses well what our society is, what our society thinks. If God's love made us central and focused on our val- value, belly button gazers, as we are so often, it would distract us from what is most precious, namely himself. Love labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, God. Therefore, God's love labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focuses our affections on the treasure of God. Now I'm going to present some fairly heavy material here. Um, Perhaps it'll help you to start to think about this issue. I'm sure some of you have thought about it a lot more than I have. It's a difficult, complex subject. Here's some suggestions for you to meditate on. First of all, God is not a human. He's not fallen. He's not in any way imperfect. God is the greatest conceivable being. If I glory in myself, I'm so imperfect. So imperfect. Just celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary, and I looked at my wife 
that first morning, that morning of our 52nd wedding anniversary, I thought to myself, how did you ever stick with me for 52 years? Uh, so imperfect. What a lousy husband I am. We're imperfect. Secondly, we need to learn to consider the motivations and the actions of a being of truly infinite power, wisdom, and love, so far beyond us. We need to learn to try to think about what his motivations, what his actions are. God's glory, uh, bod in Hebrew, it talks about weight, something that's heavy, something that's of value because it's heavy. God's glory is simply said to be a fact of his all-loving, all-holy, his powerful nature. It's part of who he is. Exodus 24, 16. His glory is not the first of a thing he seeks from us. It is first of all an unalterable fact of his very being. God is glorious, whether you or I acknowledge it or not. Fourthly, God is seeking his own glory. It's not arrogance but a desire to teach a primary lesson in the nature of reality. If God is a back of all things, this God is glorious. And when we align ourselves with this fact, we come into truth. And then it goes better for us. Far from being selfish then, God's desire, God's desire for glory is a gift for us. It's a gift for us. And just like that, it is God's gift to us to, gift to, us to show us in creation and redemption, that behind the universe is a first cause who necessarily must be all-powerful, self-existent, eternal, and spiritual. In a word, glorious. When we get in line with this reality, we find the source of our being, the source of meaning, the fountainhead from which we sprang, the source of eternal comfort. We, we live in a world that is not going well. We live in a Canada, in a Quebec, which is not going well. And the reason for that, when I came to Quebec for the first time, my dad was transferred to Sorel to oversee the construction of destroyers for the Canadian Navy in Sorel at Marine Industries in 1961, 62. Just a young guy. When I came to Quebec, the church was the center of the life of a Quebecer. And I'm not, on the, you know, I guess I'm old, I don't know. Not all that old. And I've had time to observe Quebec completely change where their religion, former Christianity at least, was the center of their existence, the center of the life of the community. The church was the center of the life of the community to where we're tearing, in the city of Three Rivers, 135,000 people were destroying, tearing down seven big Catholic churches. Nobody goes to church anymore except to be buried. That's what's happened in our society, and our society is not better off. We've taken God as out of the center of our existence, put ourselves in that place, and you see the results. How is this arrogant? How is God's glory arrogant? This is the opposite of petty arrogance or insecurity. This is generosity. God wants, us, wants to share who he is, his glory, with his creation. And only people who hunger for that glory will get on it, uh, get in, in on it. Again, a natural consequence of living in line with reality. Paul says that people who do not so hunger, that is, who do not glorify God, they receive in themselves all manner of troubles. 
read Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, and you'll see that these people who saw that God existed through his power in creation rejected God, rejected his glory, and chose an error. Their chief error is that they believed a lie. Certainly there is a God responsible for this grand universe. To ignore his existence and nature is a terrible oversight, and it leads naturally to a life that's not working right. And that's just how God, just how Paul, through the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit through Paul, describes those who diminish or deny God's glory. And read Romans 1, verses 29 through 31, and we see what happens to a society which rejects God's glory. Just one final thought about, about this subject. I define mystery in the New Testament as God's revealing something that was hidden beforehand in the Old Testament. But now I'm going to use the word mystery in the common sense, in the English language. This is mysterious to me. This is something I can't understand. God will share his glory with you and I throughout all eternity. That blows my mind. The Old Testament told us, God says, I will not share my glory with anybody. But in the New Testament, Jesus prayed in John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may, even, they may be one even as we are one. In Romans 8, verse 30, we read, and those who he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's glory is not selfish. Now just remember this idea about being glorified with God. If we read Romans 8 in the context, we read that this is the first in five steps. Um, God calls. God foreknows, which means choosing, choosing in my mind. He predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. He called, he justified, and after that he glorified. It would be a dangerous thing, it would be a horrible thing, for God to share his glory through people who had not been called and predestinated and justified, sanctified. Only then does God dare glorify us. God's glory is not selfish. God's glory is not worrying only about himself. God's glory is simply re recognizing the reality of existence in the universe. And this wonderful God of glory, his desire is to share it. Wonderful truth, through in eternity past, beyond our comprehension, before time existed, God loved his son so much that he decided to create a race of beings who would be like his son, he would be in his son, who would be glorified like his son, whom he would love because they were in his son. And that's you and me. And throughout eternity, the glory of God will be manifested in us and through us. God's glory is not selfish. God continues, uh, Paul continues in this purpose, verses 10 to 11. I didn't read that. I guess I better read it. Excuse me. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may, may, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities 
in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul continues by telling us that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to angels and demons. The church is a schoolhouse for heavenly powers. Angels, demons, they can see the power of God in creation. And they can see the wrath of God in, in, at Sinai, where God gave his law. And they can see the love of God in Calvary. But the wisdom of God is revealed in the church. Does, does that make you tremble a little bit? That high, heavenly powers, powerful angels, whose being is beyond our comprehension. Demonic, horrible, dynamic forces look at the church and they say, wow, look at the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is revealed in the church. In the classroom of God's universe, I'm quoting MacArthur here, the teacher is God. The students are the angels. The church is the illustration. The subject is the manifold wisdom of God. Oh, sisters, brothers, how dare we neglect the church? How dare we try to rethink the church and try to make it something different from what we find in God's word? The church is God's idea. Our last point is privileges. Verses 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Which is? Which is? You got your Bibles open? Which is? Your glory. Mm -hmm. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now I have limited access to the mayor of three rivers. Met him recently to complain about they put a median in my street. My street was so narrow it was hard to get two cars down it and they put a median in besides that. I have a trailer which I can no longer back up into my yard and I explained that to the mayor. Um, I have no access to Mr. Legault and even less to Mr. Trudeau. Um, I won't lie to you, that's not a great disappointment to me. Um, but I can be bold and confident when I access the all-glorious king of this universe. This is part of the ministry. Old Testament saints had very limited access to God. God's people could not enter even the holy place in the tabernacle. That was, that was limited to a few Levites, a few priests. And the Holy of Holies, where God, in a sense, dwelt among his people on the Ark of the Alliance once a year. The high priest would go in after many ceremonies, offering a sacrifice and washing himself and changing his garments. He would go in. We're told that they used to tie a rope around his leg because we remember that two of Aaron's sons were killed when they entered the wrong way into that holy place and they died. And so they were afraid that the high priest might be rejected. And so they, they didn't want to go in and get him if he died. So if God killed him, so they tied a, a rope on his leg so they could pull him out. That's how much they feared entering into the, sense, into the presence of God. In the Roman Empire, 
having access to the god was the gods was complicated. They would go to a, an oracle, like the oracle of Delphi, and they would pay somebody, and and that somebody would talk to an intermediary, and they would hear sounds and echoes, and that would be translated back to them. It was very, very complicated to access their gods. Their gods were indifferent. The, the word that described the Roman gods and the Greek gods more than anything else was pathos, uh, indifference, no empathy. And we, we have bold, illimited, confident access to God. And so because of these wonderful truths, we must not lose heart. Paul did not lose heart despite his four or five years of prison. And he did not want others to lose heart because of his sufferings. His sufferings, he says, are your glory. When I suffer, I don't think it's about glory, but that's the reality. In John, secondly, in our conclusion, in verse... in. John 17, the reason Jesus gives his glory to believers is that they might be one. Remember that verse we read? Better we read it. It's important. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they might be one, even as we are one. So the reason God shares his glory with us, part of that, is that they might be one. When Christians fight and bicker, they are above all affecting the glory of God in their lives and the life of the church. Um, COVID has hurt churches. Um, people are afraid to come back. Um, I hope that's why people aren't coming back to church. Are they becoming comfortable in their homes and a bit lazy, perhaps in some cases? But one of the things that really disturbs me is I, I know churches where, where leaders have left the church. I think of a church in Kaplan Madlen, part of Three Rivers. Not a church I'm involved with at all, but a church where I knew the leaders. That church split right down the middle. There are now two churches. Very, it was a good, strong church. Now there's two churches. And the reason they... they um, they split. Half the church wanted to refuse to wear a mask in the service, and the other half wanted to obey the government, and so they split. I know of a, an assembly, I won't tell you where it is, where out of four elders, two left the church because they didn't agree with the idea of not letting people into the building who didn't have their passport. Now, I'm not going to give my opinion on those issues, wouldn't be worth anything anyway. But couldn't people just get along? It's a difficult situation. Dividing a church over that, fighting over that. God gives his glory to us that we might be one. Let's learn to get along. Let's learn to stop bickering. Let's live for the glory of God in unity. And finally... What's your motivation for living? What are your priorities? We need to live for the glory of God. 75 in a few days. A lot of people ask me about retiring. Uh, I probably have to slow down a little bit. <coughs> but um, sitting around and doing nothing and not serving the Lord anymore? 
What are your priorities? Making as much money as possible, having the biggest house in town, um, nothing wrong in having a house, honorable to earn our living. But oh, my brothers and my sisters, we need to sit down once in a while and ask ourselves the question, what is the glory of God? Where does that stack up in my priorities? Is it down here? It's very secondary. After I get everything else, everything else done that's more important, or is living for the glory of God my priority? Priority. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thank you for Paul's example here. He calls himself the least of all saints, but he lived for your glory and he gave himself completely for you, for your service. Thank you for the wonderful truths in Ephesians, for our position, for our salvation. And to think that in the future that you will share your glory with us, whether it blows our minds, it's beyond our comprehension. We don't understand all the blessings that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Help us, Lord, to live for your glory.